Well, today we celebrate the third of what we call the three great feasts. Two weeks ago, we had Ascension Sunday. Then last week was Pentecost. And now today is known as Trinity Sunday. Now, the first two feasts make intuitive sense to me, right? The Ascension and Pentecost are important events in the life of the church. The Ascension, when Jesus was taken up into heaven and ascended to the right hand of the Father, and Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the disciples. But why Trinity Sunday? Why on earth do we have a feast day dedicated to a doctrine? It's not like we have the Feast of the Omniscience or Substitutionary Atonement Sunday. I mean, we don't even see the word Trinity in the Bible, right? And I heard from the guy that wrote the Da Vinci Code that the Trinity wasn't even invented until 300 years after Jesus, right? Jesus didn't even teach about the Trinity, right? Okay, obviously I'm being facetious. But if you're just doing a word search in the Bible on the word Trinity, you're not going to find it. Nor will you find the doctrine summarized as we see it in the fourth century at the Council of Nicaea and the Nicene Creed. You won't see that summary written anywhere in Scripture. Now, in case you're newer to Christianity, I want to give you a summary of the doctrine of the Trinity, just a really like brief condensed one. It's basically the belief that Christians have that God is one God who has existed eternally in three persons. God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Holy Spirit is God. But there are not three gods. There's only one God. That's kind of a, a rough summary. There's, there's a lot more we can say about it, but a rough summary of what the Trinity means. And you're not even going to find that summary in Scripture written out like that. What you do find is a whole lot of Scripture that doesn't make sense if God is not Trinity. The passage we read today in Matthew, the gospel passage, is one of those passages. If you want to follow along, uh, I'm going to be roughly following Matthew 28, 16 to 20. I'll be jumping around to some other passages as well. But th this passage is about an event that happened sometime, we're not sure exactly when, between when Jesus first appeared to his disciples in, in Jerusalem after the resurrection and when he ascended 40 days later. Sometime in there, he met them at a mountain in Galilee. And if your understanding of God isn't Trinitarian, this passage is really confusing. Because first of all, look at, look at verse 17 with me. It said, and when they saw him, they worshiped him. Okay, these are Jewish men. Christianity wasn't like a religion categorized that way then, right? I mean, these men are devout Jews who believe what God said in the Old Testament, that the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall have no other gods before me. And they're worshiping Jesus. And what's more, Jesus isn't stopping them. In fact, he ups the ante. He goes on in verse 18 and he says, All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Now, in Genesis 1, Adam was given dominion over the earth. But all authority in heaven is given to him? Who has that authority other than God? And then he goes on to say something very strange. He says, to, tells them to go and make disciples. 
That's not strange. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Where did that come from? Like, why didn't he just say, baptize them in the name of God? Or baptize them in the name of Yahweh? Or baptize them in the name of Jesus, in my name? For that matter, why is it the name, not the names, of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit? This is so troubling to some scholars. Some scholars who are convinced that the Trinity is a late invention are so disturbed by this that they've decided that it's not possible Jesus could have said it. They assume that it was a later edition. The idea is that there was some scribe who was copying out the gospel from an earlier manuscript. And he was like, oh, wait a minute. We baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say that here. I'm sure Jesus meant that. I'm going to write it in. It's an interesting theory. There are times where we found later manuscripts that have some, some changes that are a little bit different. The only problem with that theory is there is no textual evidence for it. Based only on the textual evidence that we have, the manuscripts that we have ever found, every single one has the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So based only on that textual evidence, it would seem that the reason the church baptizes in the name of the Trinity is that Jesus told his disciples to do it. So the Trinity has always been very important to the church. The church has always wrestled with who the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are. It's so important. When, when you look at the early doctrinal debates of the church as they were figuring out the, the details of theology, most of them center around the question of the Trinity. But why? Why does the Trinity matter so much? That's the question that I want to dig into today. Now, some of you are, are going to be disappointed because you're hoping you're like, Trinity Sunday, we're going to like figure out like how God can be three and one and dig into the mechanics. And there are people who have done that. People have come up with all kinds of analogies to try to explain them and they never quite work. Um, there are people who have gone deep into how the Trinity works. Um, there are people who have dug into the beauty of the Trinity. I can recommend some books to you. As I was uh, studying for this, I read a, a great, helpful book called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. Short book, great place to start. But my goal here today is to talk about why the Trinity matters. And I want to talk about three reasons that the Trinity matters to normal everyday Christians like you and like me. First of all, the Trinity matters because it's who God is. Second, the Trinity matters because our salvation is Trinitarian. And third, the Trinity matters because we become like what we worship. So first, the Trinity matters because it's who God is. See, the doctrine of the Trinity isn't just about a characteristic of God. I mentioned omniscience earlier, uh, God being all-knowing, God is all-powerful, God is just. Those are things that we can say about God. The Trinity actually expresses something about the identity of God. As many of you know, my day job is in the IT department at Wheaton College, and uh, it's, it's out in the western suburbs. And one of the side effects of being in higher ed IT is that I pretty regularly get sales calls and emails from uh, people who are trying to get their product into the higher ed space. And I usually ignore them or politely decline unless I'm looking for that, that kind of solution. Uh, but a few weeks ago, I received an email that grabbed my attention because it felt a little bit off. I actually want to read an excerpt from, uh, from it for you. It, it said, 
Hello, Kevin. I hope this email finds you well. My name is Brenda, and I am the Wheaton College account manager for the name of the product. Brenda goes on to describe the product, what it does, and then here's the part that caught my interest. We have been working with teams within Wheaton College as well as a number of other universities. We are a Wheaton College approved vendor, and we've been working with Joe Lacasio's team. Perhaps it makes sense to bring your team in as well. Now, this puzzled me because, first of all, I'm pretty familiar with our software environment. I know the products that people are using on campus, and I have never heard of this product. And what's more, she name drops Joe Lacasio like I should know who he is. He wasn't in our directory. I'd never heard of this guy. And in about 15 seconds, I realized what had happened. And I wrote a letter back to Brenda. I said, dear Brenda, I believe you have us confused with a different Wheaton College in Massachusetts. All the best, Kevin. She replied the next day that she had indeed sent that email to the wrong Wheaton College. We get this all the time. And apparently the other Wheaton College does too. Um, they, uh, 2010, I think, they invited Ann Curry, former NBC uh, news anchor, to, to speak at their commencement. And she name-dropped Billy Graham and Todd Beamer and, and Wes Craven, um, all, all alumni of our Wheaton College. It's an easy mistake to make because they are both small, private, liberal arts colleges founded in the 19th century, but they're very different places. It's not the same thing. And so when, when somebody calls my team for tech support and they're from the other Wheaton College, and, and which happens about once a month, they, they, they have this kind of conversation that at first like, makes sense, but then over time, something feels off. They're not talking about the same thing. Kind of like what happens when we try to talk about God in general terms. We hear God talked about in movies and pop songs and political speeches. Religious people of various stripes, Muslims, Mormons, broadly spiritual people, all talk about faith in God, and often in very similar ways. We may talk about him as the Almighty, as creator, or talk about his transcendence. And at first, it might seem like we're talking about the same thing. But when Christians talk about God, we mean something, or rather someone, very specific. We always mean Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the early centuries of the church, as, as churches were reading the scriptures and praying together and, and worshiping God in their various communities spread out across initially the Roman world, they, their, their vision of God was being shaped by their reading of scripture and by their worship together. And what they discovered is when the Chris, a Christian from Ephesus would get together with a Christian from Corinth, somehow by the power of the Holy Spirit, their vision of God had been shaped in the same way, in a very similar way. But every once in a while at these gatherings, someone would come in and they would start saying things about God that just felt off. There was a priest named Arius who said, well, you know, God the Father wasn't always God the Father because at some point he had to beget the Son, right? There was a time when the Son wasn't born yet and so God wasn't always Father. And they said, that feels off. And they looked at their scriptures and they, they, they said, doesn't John say that Jesus is the word of God? That he was in the beginning with God, that he is God? And they realized that what Arius meant when he talked about God wasn't the same thing that they meant when they talked about God. And they named it as heresy, or you could say idolatry. This happened again and again over the centuries. And, and through that, the, the church more clearly defined what they'd always believed. 
what they'd always worshipped about God. So the fathers didn't invent the doctrine of the Trinity any more than, I don't know, Isaac Newton invented gravity, right? He, he, he had always experienced gravity, but as he tested and measured, he defined things, he discovered things. The, the church would hear hypotheses about what God is like, and they would test it against Scripture. And over time, they, they came to define it as we have it in the creeds. In retrospect, once you, once you know about gravity, when you look back, everything else makes sense in light of what you've discovered. And when we look back at scripture, we see the Trinity all over the place. From the very beginning, Genesis chapter one that we read today, God, a singular God, creates the heavens and the earth by his word. We find out in John that that word is Jesus through whom all things were made. And the spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. All three persons of the Trinity in one God at the very beginning of creation. And then the singular God says, let us make man in our own image. There are glimpses of the Trinity throughout the Bible. We could go verse by verse, chapter by chapter throughout the Bible. And what we build is this picture of a father who is the creator and source of all life and love. And of a son who is the word of God that reveals the father to creation and a Holy Spirit who pours out the Father's life and love, breathes out the Father's life into his sons and daughters. Now it's true, the Old Testament saints wouldn't have recognized a Trinitarian God. They didn't know they were worshiping a Trinitarian God. They were, but they didn't recognize it. But on this side of Pentecost, now that we have the incarnation, and now that we have Pentecost, we're in a position to recognize that God is Trinity. That's why Trinity Sunday happens right after Pentecost. Because we're in a position to recognize the fullness of who God is as he has revealed himself. And that's why it's so important. Because the doctrine of the Trinity helps us to worship God as he has revealed himself, to worship him rightly in a way that honors him. The alternative is idolatry. Usually we think of idolatry as people worshiping other gods, like Baal or Molech or maybe money or sex. That's what we think of, right? When we think of idolatry. But idolatry can also be when we craft a false vision of God and worship it as the real one. That's actually what happened in the golden calf incident in the wilderness. Aaron created this golden calf and he doesn't say, this is your new God, Jim Bob. No, he says, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. Let us have a feast day for Yahweh. A false vision of God that we worship as true, can also be idolatry. And what can happen is, if our conception of God is a generic divinity that Christians, Muslims, Buddhists, Mormons can all get behind, we actually run the risk of propping up an idol. Now, I'm not saying that there's a place for talking about God in general terms to, to, to have kind of common ground, to, to, to discuss what God is like. I'm saying that that's helpful, but we need to keep in our own mind's eye as we are, as, as Christians, as people who believe in Jesus, God must be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it matters because it ministers God's identity to us. And it empowers us to worship him as he has revealed himself to be, not as we imagine him to be. So the doctrine of the Trinity matters because it's who God is. But the second reason I want to talk about is the Trinity matters to us because our salvation is Trinitarian. Christians have this 
what we call the sacrament of baptism. And it, it, we, we hold it as this outward sign of an inward, invisible, spiritual work of salvation that God accomplishes. So the, the spiritual significance is we are being rescued from sin and death, and we're being brought into the kingdom of Jesus, adopted in the family of God. That, that's, that's the package of baptism, right? Now, what do you suppose it means when Jesus says to baptize in the name of Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to do something and to do anything in someone's name? Suppose I wanted to buy uh, some real estate somewhere far away, and uh, um, I know somebody there who I trust. I might ask that person to take care of some, some legal items for me, to make some decisions, to take certain legal actions in my name. I might give them power of attorney to do something for me. I'm the one taking the action. Ultimately, I'm the one responsible. I'm the one who's doing stuff. And I'm enlisting them to execute that for me. It's a rough analogy. But when Jesus' disciples go out and they start baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're acting on behalf of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're executing the water baptism, but the Father, Son, and Spirit are the ones who are actually at work. They are the ones bringing us to new life, causing us to be born again through the work of all three persons of the, of the Trinity. Because our baptism is done in the name of the Trinity. As an aside, Matthew 28 is not the first Trinitarian baptism in Matthew. Remember the first one? Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus was baptized, what happens? Jesus goes down into the water as our representative. The Holy Spirit comes down and lands on him in the shape of a dove. And the Father speaks sonship over him. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus' baptism is the, the, the model, the prototype for our baptism. He is with us in the water as we identify with him. The Holy Spirit seals this reality upon us, and the Father speaks sonship over us and adopts us into his family. Sometimes as Christians, we have this tendency to, to think of our salvation in non-Trinitarian ways. We have this tendency to think of God the Father and, and Jesus the Son as being like at odds with each other in our salvation. We think of Jesus as the one who kind of takes the bullet for us from the wrath of the Father. That's not the picture we see in Scripture. We don't have to go any further than John 3.16, one of the most famous passages in the Bible, to see a father who loves the world so much that he did something so He gave his only begotten son, whom he loved, his beloved son, to restore a broken relationship with him so that we too could be adopted as sons and daughters. And the son loved us so much and he loved the Father so much that he willingly took on our humanity so that he could be our perfect high priest and atone for our sins so that we could be reconciled to God. And the Spirit is there who seals the promises of our baptism on us and pours God's love into our hearts and breathes God's life into us. The whole Trinity is involved in our salvation. And this is important because salvation is more of more than just forgiveness of sins. That, that image I described earlier of father and son kind of at odds with each other, that can get us as far as getting our sins forgiven. 
but that's not enough. That's not what we need. What we need is reconciliation. What we need is to be brought back in fellowship, in full fellowship with the God who made us for himself. And this is possible because of the Trinity. Because when we're united with Jesus in our baptism, which is what Romans 6 says is happening in our baptism, when we're united with Jesus in his death and resurrection, we're not just in union with him because he's in union with the Father and the Spirit. We are actually brought into the full life of the Trinity and adopted into the family of God. The Trinity matters because our salvation depends on it. That's why we say the creed every week. It's basically a summary of the work of our Trinitarian God. It's a weekly reminder that the Trinity matters because our salvation is Trinitarian. Finally, so we have the Trinity matters because it's who God is. The Trinity matters because our salvation is Trinitarian. And finally, the Trinity matters because we become like what we worship. One of the principles that we see in scripture, and, and, and this shows up in a few different places, is that people become like the object of their worship. So when people are worshiping idols that can't see or hear, they become blind and deaf to spiritual realities. When God's people were in the land of Canaan and they started worshiping the, the brutal, selfish gods around them, the land became full of brutality and selfishness. That's, that's basically the story of Judges. But the flip side is also true. If we worship the true living God, we become like him. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. God's design for us as Christians is to be like him. And we see this in the Matthew passage that we read today. What does Jesus tell his, his apostles to teach these newly baptized disciples? He tells them to teach them to obey everything he has commanded. What did Jesus command them? We actually read it at the beginning of our service, I think page five, two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's the summary of the law and the prophets. And then fast forward to his last supper with his disciples. What's the one thing he wants to tell them? He says, a new commandment I give you. We call it Maundy Thursday. It means mandate Thursday. What's the mandate that he gives them? love each other. But Jesus isn't just inviting them into a sort of generic love. He's specifically and explicitly inviting them into a love that has eternally existed in the Trinity. I want to read an excerpt from what he shared on that Thursday night. This is really cool. Uh, if you want to follow along in your Bible, you can flip over to page, uh, sorry, to John 15. Um, I'm going to read from verse nine. As the father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I love. The context of Jesus's command to love us, or sorry, for us to love others, is the love that has always existed in the Trinity. The Trinity is the context. 
of his command to love each other. Have you ever wondered what God was doing for all eternity before he created the world? I'm fuzzy on the details, um, not, not having been there, but I can tell you with confidence that he was loving. And because he's Trinity, it wasn't the kind of like inward focused self-love that you might expect from a solitary being. God wasn't holding his own hand and talking to himself. It was a father loving and delighting in his son. And a son loving and being obedient to his father. And St. Augustine posited that the spirit was the personification of that love flowing freely between father and son. He gets that from Romans chapter 5 where, where God pours out his love to us through the spirit. So God didn't have to create the world because he needed someone to love. He already had that. He already had perfect love in the Trinity. In fact, there was so much love in the Trinity that he wanted it to spread. He wanted to bring more and more people into it so that the love and joy that was in the Trinity could multiply, fill the earth. That's why as Christians, our chief characteristic is to be love. Elsewhere in John chapter 13, Jesus says that this is how people are going to know that we're his disciples, that we love each other. And as we worship this God of love, this God who John tells us is love, we become like what we worship. We do need to clarify what we mean by love. It's another one of those situations where people can use the same word to talk about different things. Christian love is, doesn't just mean positive feelings about others. It doesn't mean accepting or approving every decision that a person makes. Christian love is inseparable from obedience to God. Did you notice, if you want to flip back to John 15, in, in John 15, 10, how does Jesus respond to the love of the Father? He says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Because when, if we really believe that God loves us, not just that he has good feelings about us, but that he really loves us with a sacrificial love. And if we really believe that, that he actually wants what's best for us, then we'll delight in doing what he asks us to do. Even if it's not a decision that we would maybe make for ourselves. And I gotta be honest, sometimes what he asks us to do is hard. Listen to how Jesus describes love, Christian love. John 15, 13, he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. In Jesus's case, that meant actually physically dying for us. And he wrestled with that. That wasn't easy for him just because he was God. It didn't make it easy. In fact, he had this conversation with the father where he said, if there's any other way that this could happen, can we do that? Let this cup pass from me but not my will, but yours be done. I want what you want because I love you. Now, who knows? I don't know if God will call you to lay down your life in that kind of way for someone. He might. I had a, a friend in, in college, uh, a youth pastor at my church. His name was Pastor Bruce. And um, uh, he and his brother dove into the Fox River to try to save somebody near, near a dam um, who was drowning. And they got sucked into the same current. And he laid down his life 
or a stranger. But as I think about Bruce and the way that he lived, I realize that was just the tip of the iceberg. He had been laying down his life for other people for as long as I had known him. He laid down his life that, that time that I was, I was hanging out with him and another friend and it was late. We were about to wrap up and he got a phone call and he took it and he said, hey, I got to go. Um, that was one of my old youth group kids from years ago and uh, he lives about an hour away. He's gotten himself into some trouble. I got to go be there for him. And he drove an hour away in the middle of the night for a kid in his youth group from years ago. He laid down his life for that kid. God invites us to lay down our lives for one another in great and small ways. He invites us to lay down our own concerns, to listen to that friend who's in crisis. He invites us to lay down our financial resources for those who are in need or to, to meet the operational needs of the church. I don't know what time Drew gets here on Sunday mornings. He's always here when I get here to set up sound. But he's here along with the worship team and all the people setting up, laying down their Sunday mornings for us. Some of you are with the kids and Emmanuel kids, serving children and family, laying, families, laying down your life, a small part of your life for God's children. I don't even know all the ways that you serve your, your neighbors and your coworkers and your family and your friends and your classmates. But as Christians, that's what we're called to. We're called to lay down our lives for one another in big ways and small ways. And when we do this, we are participating in a love that has existed since before the creation of the world. But Jesus's plan is not just to have an insular loving community. He told his disciples to go out and bring others into that love so that they could experience the love of the Trinity as well. We are sons and daughters of a God who longs to have his love spread far and wide that more people might be drawn into it. And one of the most loving things we can do for someone is to tell them about the love of Jesus and the Father and the Spirit for them. And he doesn't send us to do this alone. He gives us his Holy Spirit. And he says through his Holy Spirit that he will be with us always. Now, if you're like me, that doesn't always come naturally. I think sometimes our kids, like, it, it can do this more easily. You know, they don't get all, like, complicated about, like, oh, how are they going to accept it? Like, my daughter, when she discovered that there was a neighbor boy who didn't know Jesus, like, she got really worried. And, and she, like, wanted to talk to him about it. And, like, can we bring him a Bible? And, you know, she, like, realized, like, this is, we, we, we need to do this. I care about him. Sometimes we complicate things. And I complicate things. And this, outward, this kind of outward-facing love doesn't always come naturally but we have a father who gives good gifts. And so we can ask him. He loves it when we ask him things in Jesus's name. We can ask him that his love would overflow in us and to others. I want to invite you as, as, we're, as we're praying together after the sermon, as, as you're coming forward to tangibly receive Jesus's love for you in the Eucharist, I want to invite you to, to ask Jesus for an outpouring of love. Ask the Father for an outpouring of love that he might maybe even bring to your heart someone who needs the love of a good father. It might be somebody who knows Jesus. It might be somebody who doesn't know Jesus. But I would love for us to be a people who are so full of the love of God 
who are so aware of his love for us being poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that we can't help but tell people about it and fulfill that great commission that we received in Matthew to go and make disciples. My prayer is that all of us will be filled to overflowing with the love of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay.